Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and uh, via Zoom today, we have Sue Grimmett coming in from the office. Hey, Sue. Yeah, good to see you all. And um, Peter Cat, whose uh, Zoom backgrounds never cease to amaze me and amuse me. Today, it's some sort of a cartoon animation. What's today's background, Peter? It's uh, one person standing on a cliff, uh, looking across a big gulf and asking the question, how do we get there? Yeah. Sort of like the COVID or climate change um, yeah. conundrum. Yeah. And you, you sit in the middle of the space between the two. I sit in the middle of the space because that's where we should be. That's right. I'm, I'm in the U. I'm, I'm going down the side of the canyon. To yeah. get to the <laughs> that's perfect. That's brilliant. <coughs> well, today's guest is someone we are so excited to have on. Uh, she'll be a familiar name to, to many of our listeners. Um, Diana Butler-Bass, who is one of the leading voices in the progressive Christianity movement, um, currently an independent scholar writing on American religion and culture and is the author of a bunch of books most recently. And this is what we'll be discussing today, Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Saviour, Lord and Way. Diana, thank you so much for jumping in uh, to, to have a conversation with us. Oh, I'm very excited to be here. I, I so miss travel. And uh, part of that travel means coming down to, to Australia and New Zealand. I actually had a, a trip scheduled to New Zealand, right. uh, just originally scheduled for just a couple of months after the pandemic started. And of course that was canceled. So it's been so long since I've seen your faces and heard your accents and I love it. <laughs> well, we'll have to, we'll have to pencil in an in-person recording one day when you do get down here, when, uh, when the world moves in that direction again. Um, I, I want to, there's so much to cover in this book. Obviously you, you do uh, look at the six different ways you've understood Jesus or known Jesus in your life. And we'll, we'll talk about them um, one by one in a moment, but I, I want to just to begin with ask, what was it that inspired you for your latest book, what made you think, I'm going to write a book about Jesus? It might be a stupid question, but I'm curious to know, what, what, where did that come from? Well, originally, I did not plan on writing a book about Jesus. Um, so much of my speaking for years has been with, you know, other writers and other scholars. And so I have talked with, you know, on stage with Marcus Borg or Dom Crossan, people who are like big name, you know, New Testament scholars. And so I never really felt capable <laughs> next to some of those people uh, in thinking about writing a book about Jesus. But what I did want to do was um, write a handbook of theology for people who were becoming disaffected with the church, who might be questioning certain things about the church, even if they still go to church, and people who have become sort of post-institutionally religious. So people who are kind of beyond the church, but who still consider themselves somewhat vaguely Christian. So I was just going to write an eight chapter book on eight different themes of theology, you know, helping theology make sense for people who are sort of on, on their way, as it were. I like the title of your podcast. <laughs> and so, so when I got around to writing that book in the summer of 2019, I was sitting here at my desk. This is actually where I write. Um, and um, I thought, what chapter should I start with? the heaven and hell chapter, the nature of the Bible, you know, salvation, what should I start with? And I thought, okay, the easiest chapter in this book to write will be the chapter about Jesus. And so that's what I'm going to write. I'm going to write the chapter about Jesus. And I sat down right here in this chair and started typing. And 
80 pages later, I realized that I was not just writing a chapter about Jesus in a short and breezy handbook about theology, <laughs> <laughs> but somehow I th th thought, oh no, I think I'm writing a book about Jesus. So I called my publisher and I said that, and they, they literally said to me, what do you know about Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> And I said, well, hey, I, I'm a Christian. I'm in my late 50s. I think I know a thing or two about Jesus, you know? And so they said, well, okay, we'll, we'll give it a try. But if it doesn't work, we'll go back to the first idea. <laughs> and so then I started writing and um, that's the genesis of freeing Jesus. Well, there's a, a really powerful story that you share uh, in the book, which in some way frames probably the the whole book itself and, and maybe it would be a great way to start the conversation about something that happened to you in the Washington National Cathedral, an experience you had um, there. Could you share that story with us? Now, in 2013, I was working on a book called Grounded. Uh, Grounded is a sort of a eco-theology. Where do you find God in nature? And... Um, you know, I live in the suburbs outside of Washington, D.C., and there's not a whole lot of untampered with nature anywhere near me. And so when you want to find a place that's sort of spiritually refreshing, that's not just your office, um, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm really struggling with this book. I'm sort of stuck. I need to go somewhere and get a new perspective on it. So I, I jumped in my car and I drove up to the city, up to Washington, and um, I went into the Washington National Cathedral, which is a place, you know, it's big, it's spacious, it has beautiful art, like, you know, most Anglican cathedrals. And so, so I've often found that to be a really soul-releasing place. So I went to the Chapel of the Holy Spirit, which is a side chapel next to the high altar, and I knelt down. And um, in that chapel, there's this beautiful altarpiece of Jesus, which is done by the uh, pre-Raphaelite uh, artist, American artist, uh, N.C. Wyatt. And uh, so it's a turn of the 20th century piece. And it's just this beautiful painting of Jesus in blue and gold with this lovely sort of pink uh, shawl around him. And it's just, it's, it's, it's quite moving. So I'm there, I'm praying, I'm, God, God, I can't do this project. I can't, I can't feel it. I need, I need to know where you are, please God. So I'm sort of wrestling in this Job-like way with God. And all of a sudden I hear a voice and the voice said, get me out of here. And I, <laughs> I literally went, who said that? And I turned around and looked and there was nobody else in the chapel. There was no one else in the cathedral. So I thought, well, am I imagining things? And so I went back more to my God wrestle prayer uh, God, where are you? I need to, I need to understand what you're trying to tell me right now. And the, a second time, same voice, get me out of here. And at this point I looked up at the painting and I said, Jesus, is that you? <laughs> and, and the voice came a third time, get me out of here. And at, at the, then I was completely freaked out because paintings do not usually talk to me. <laughs> and um, I, 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 then I heard footsteps as well. I looked and there was a priest coming down the center aisle of the cathedral. And I thought, this is the last thing I want to be near a talking painting of Jesus with a priest in the church. I am just cutting, cutting loose. And so I literally ran out of the church, jumped in my car, drove back down to my home in Virginia. And, um, 
the only person I ever told this to um, until I wrote this book was my husband, Richard. And he thought it was hilarious when I told him and refers to it and has referred to it since 2013 as that time that Jesus asked you to spring him from the slammer. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't steal the painting. The painting is still there. (laughs) And um, that becomes the frame for, for freeing Jesus because the, I never forgot it and really always just bothered me. You know, it's like, why in the world was Jesus telling me to get him out of the national cathedral? And what is, what did that mean? Yeah, that's, that's remarkable. And it's interesting because while I was reading that, I was thinking of my own context. I work in a high school with young people exploring, you know, the big questions of life. And it it really, it, it intrigues me there because I'll use words like God and the Holy Spirit, and they don't seem to have too much of a problem with those words all of the time but they sometimes cringe at the word Jesus. And I, I've always wondered what is it about what's happened to this word and this name and this person that has, has created a cringing response. What, how has he been co-opted into, you know, some other thing that is now making people cringe at, at, you know, probably this incredible rebel who would have maybe captivated them back in the day, most likely. So I guess that as a starting question, how, how did Jesus become something that people are cringing at? Well, you know, I can't answer necessarily globally for that, um, but I, I'm willing to bet that there are some parallel experiences between the United States and Australia around this. Um, the first one is just sort of a general turn in Western culture away from religion. And Uh, While people are willing to think about God, um, thinking about God in specific terms, especially specifically Christian terms, is a less welcome kind of prospect. And of course, the spirit, it also seems like a general term, even though Christians do really talk about the Holy Spirit and the third person of the Trinity. But we also use that more generally just as the the spirit of God in the world, etc. So God and spirit are more more open terms, but, but Jesus seems exclusive to people. That if you talk about Jesus or say you love Jesus, it sort of implies that you don't want to talk about Mohammed or the Buddha or other kinds of great religious leaders. And we, so many Christians have wrapped Jesus around, I think, almost a single verse in the Gospel of John. That is, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to, to the Father except by me. And so that's where this Jesus exclusiveness comes from. And um even if a person never heard that verse, um, somehow it's sort of made it into the cultural ether of uh, certainly English speaking countries with large sorts of populations or traditions of evangelicalism. And so that describes the United States. I think that also describes Australia pretty well, Canada and England too. Uh, so, so I think that's, uh, that's a big part of it. Um, in the United States in particular, Um, This is all caught up now in politics. And um, Jesus has been claimed really by one side, by one political party in the United States, and that is the conservatives, the Republican Party. And um, even though it doesn't come in my book, because my book was written before this happened, um, on the day of the insurrection at the Washington Capitol, when all those uh, angry Trump people invaded Congress and tried to stop the results of the last presidential election, which is still something that we just are living in shock with here. Um, There was this 
photograph and uh, the photograph had two dominant images in it. So it was a sort of bifocal kind of photograph. And one of the images was a gallows that these Trump supporters put up. And that was where they were planning on hanging Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States. And next to that was a, a fellow who was in all this Trump gear and he was holding up a huge sign that said, Jesus saves. Mm-hmm. And uh, that to me is almost like the zenith of right, the right wing political co-option of Jesus. And I'm, I'm so furious and, and so are so many other American Christians that that's happened here. Um, but it is also a picture that's ingrained in the minds of my fellow citizens and we'll never leave our history books. And so what do we do with that? Because a big question. Yeah. I think that's an amazing story though, because it also shows how Jesus always subverts, you know, and hopefully people, when they, even though they're seeing that image over and over again, they will see the subversion of it. We had um, before our last federal election, we ended up with a a climate forum, like a, with all the political candidates. And we were going at my place at my church and we were going to meet in the hall, but we had so many people we had to move into our church, which is quite large. And at the front of our church, um, right above the altar, we have an enormous crucifix. Um, and I often go and talk to it too, it hasn't talked back so far, but you know, I'll, I'll keep that in mind now. Um, but in, with that crucifix up the front there, um, I sat there listening to the politicians speaking and this subversive symbol that was right behind their heads, you know, because uh, Jesus on the cross will always speak in the voice of the other, always in the, the voice of the marginalised. Um, it's always anti-empire. And in this case, it was like the, the voice of the other was the voice of the earth a bit too, as we're making all these justifications. You've got the cross behind. And I sort of think of that when you're talking about this image of the gallows and the Jesus saves picture, you know, the dissonance, I think, hopefully should also penetrate. Um, but you're, you're also right that this is part if when, when it's taken at face value, and people don't see see the message that's coming through the um, then it, it has been very destructive for having how do we have conversations about Jesus when when those things are put together. I think that's that something. Is, yes, right, yeah. I was just going to say that's actually a brilliant analysis, and I think that there there's such a sermon there because the question that that photograph presents is jesus the hangman is he participating in the empire you know sort of hanging all of all of you know anything that would question his power in this case white supremacy white christian nationalism ethno fundamentalism um or is jesus the 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 hero the one who was actually hanged on Mm. a gallows uh for the healing of the world so so you're 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 pitch perfect there with the, all that ambiguity theologically yeah. and i love that and it, it, one of the stories you tell later in the book is is when you and richard are first i think it's one of your first conversations and he says that he wants his jesus back because he's been hijacked and um i think a combination of yours of that story of the capital and sue's analysis is is one of the things that spurns me on is um it, you know, he's he's not their Jesus. He's not my Jesus either. You know, we we are his. You know, it's, 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 we, he's not a weapon, and we have to um, stick in there to uh, 
to, to, to challenge the, otherwise we vacate the territory. And I think that was one of the things you and Richard were talking about, how is the, you know, the really, and one of the things I love the way you, in your book, you take themes that uh, sometimes people move away from because of the narrow understanding of them and you re-expand them so they can be reclaimed as part of the tradition. And I'm, I'm reminded of a book written by uh, a gay Anglican priest called Jim Cotter, um, called Yes Minister. And he was asked, this is probably in the 1980s, I think, and he was asked why he persevered with the church when the church was so cruel to him. And he just said, it's not their so-and-so church and I'm not giving up. And I'm not giving it up. You know, it's my church too. So I'm staying. I'm staying because I'm a follower of Jesus, and I think uh, we need to encourage a lot more people to uh, be as uh, traumatized as you were, and then turn that trauma into action and reclaim, as as you do, free Jesus. I think it's a, a really timely book. But that's that's what I. I mean, I eventually figure out that it's not so much Jesus is asking me to free him from the church. I, that that becomes Jesus's business, you know. Yeah. But, but the the point is, is that my own life gets so caught up with these particular um, certain images of Jesus, and then I think I've got it. You know, this is really this is the real Jesus. Mm. And every time that I've gotten to that point in my own journey some other Jesus sort of breaks through and takes me further um, down this, this road of what it means to be a, a, a Christian in today's world. And so um, in that sense, uh, I write several uh, all over this book that I really, I love Jesus, you know, as uh, companion, uh, as um, uh, sort of the one who points the way on the, on the, on the path um, all the different images as, mm. are become a, a real prism of my life, and I think also reflect into a prism of who of who Jesus is himself. And you know, here he's been around for two thousand years, and on these shelves behind me, I don't even know how many books there are about Jesus. And as you know, it's just some small fraction of of Jesus books um, that have been published through all those years, and and. Jesus never really is captured by our words. Mm -hmm. Jesus keeps pushing us further down these roads. So, so j just before we go into looking at the six different ways in a little bit more detail, um, as we've sort of touched on a bit already, I I'm curious, would you be able to explain, because I've heard you do this on another podcast before in the book as well, um, a more helpful reading of the no one comes to the father except through me verse, because if that, that idea of the exclusive Jesus, the exclusivity of Jesus is the difficulty for many people in hearing the words in, in accessing what's going on here, I thought it might be really helpful to unpack that at the beginning. Oh, sure. Um, the, there's, um, really powerful context in which Jesus says that it comes from the gospel of John and it's from a very specific uh, discourse of Jesus. It's sort of Jesus last discourse to his friends before he, he dies on the cross. And so he's giving them lots of instructions and all these different kinds of things. He's reminding them that he loves them and that everything's about to change, but they, he's trying to comfort them in advance. And so the context 
for I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except by me, um, is not that of Jesus and the disciples sitting around a table speculating on the fate of Jews, Muslims, and Buddhists, and Hindus at the end of time. <laughs> it's, it's not a context where Jesus is concerned at all um, about any other religious path or what's going to happen um, literally after anyone dies. The, the specific context is his friends sense that he's going away, that something bad is about to happen to the Jesus they love, and that um, in that activity, they're going to be left alone. They're basically like, uh, <laughs> this is a, probably a weird example to use, but when I used to drop my daughter off at preschool when she was two, three years old, she would literally stand there at the preschool door and grab my skirt and cry her eyes out because she was terrified of being abandoned. She thought I was never going to come back. And so I don't think it's entirely a coincidence that Jesus starts this big discourse in which this particular exclusive looking verse occurs with, um, do not be afraid, little children. <laughs> And so I think about this, okay, this is the disciples, they're standing at the preschool door and, and Jesus is going off to work. And so um, what does Jesus say? I went, well, Jesus tells them all kinds of things that Jesus thinks will bring them comfort. And one of them is this, this thing, I'm the way, the truth and the life. Um, and so that really shifts it to understand the context of the comment. It's not a question about world religion. It's a comforting statement vis-a-vis -vis the disciples' fears about abandonment. And so, well, how is that comforting? It becomes the second question. And I think this is actually pretty easy if we think about the text. Um, it's not the first part, I'm the way, the truth, the life. That's beautiful. That's really poetic. Think about God as the, the deep truthfulness of all that we know of creation, of the expanding nature of the universe, I, don't, I get I'm on I'm on that path. Um, I'm the, I'm the I'm the way. Jesus is the one that opens up uh, a pathway to travel during life that gives us meaning, and and I'm the life, the one who enables you to flourish, the one who gives you all of your heart's desire, abundance, all that stuff. So that's really beautiful. There's nothing exclusive about that. That's really welcoming. What happens with the exclusive part is when it moves into the next clause, when it says, no one can come to the father except by me. And so what we've taken in, in English, that accept to mean is to say, like an accept on the playground. We're back with the kids again. Um, is that, uh, okay, you're on my team and you're on my team and you're on my team and everybody's on my team except for you over there. And so that's one way you can use the word accept as exclusion. So all these people are in except for you, you're out. I don't want to have anything to do with you. So that is a possibility, but it doesn't fit with the context very well. There's another way we use the word accept in English that for some reason has never really attached itself to this verse. And I think it should. And that is, um, I would be dying of thirst, except that my husband brought me a glass of water. Mm. And so except becomes an action that makes a whole bunch of other self stuff possible. Um, 
I would be sweating up a storm except that my window is open. There would be no way except that someone has made a way. And so there, except becomes an opening, a movement toward possibility rather than exclusion. And so the verse reads differently. I am the way, the truth, the life. And no one comes to this, this path, this, this way, uh, except the father has made a way. Yeah, that's lovely. And, and that, again, that says nothing about Muslims. It says nothing about Hindus. All it does is say what Jesus has done for those people sitting in that room who are afraid that he's going to die. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Right. And Jeffrey John, Jeffrey John invites us to remember that um, the one who says that is in the prologue described as the light that enlightens everyone. So there's a, there's a sort of a fold back into a unit, into the, if we fold everything back into the prologue. We, it, 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 it makes sure we read it the way you read it, that you're always looking for the opening rather than the closing because the prologue itself is so expansive. So I think that's, I think there's a, that's a really great reading. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. And Peter, that just seems to me that that gets us back to the basic question is, you know, why Christianity has used or some forms of Christianity have used Jesus as exclusion mm-hmm. rather than that opening that, yeah. that generous God arms widespread on, on a cross, not to leave people out, but to mm. really embrace the whole world. And so it really depends on the, the angle that we take to seeing Jesus. And so, so in this book, of course, I, I yeah. is, a, is a life mm. struggle yes. of seeing the expansiveness of that vision mm. rather than the, the narrowness yeah. of it. So I've been encouraged, encouraged lately that um, St. Francis has, has instructed that uh, in the Latin, in the uh, in, in in Italy, they the Eucharist now is Jesus, uh, that his blood was offered for tutti for everyone. It's actually he's 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 actually captured the idea of the of Jesus and the sacrament being universal. So even even the Pope is pushing us into this universal territory, which I suspect he's discovered more and more because of his environmental stuff. But there's a there is a real I think there's a real um, moment of, of of being able to um, celebrate the, the generosity and the openness, and I think, and I like to think things like the Capitol riot and even what's happening in our country with the big push towards uh, religious freedom legislation is actually the last last gasp of this exclusionist i think i think the exclusionists can see that um something is afoot and maybe the the universal generosity is on its way and they're trying to trying to put up the walls of the fortress but i i'm having a sense that it might be just a little bit too late i i hope that you're right i'm a fatalistic optimist so yes (laughs) fatalistic optimist i love it (laughs) That's beautiful. Um, okay, well, let's uh, let's look then at, at the six different Jesuses you talk about in the book um, briefly, because you you start with probably the Jesus that many people who grew up in in churches as children um, get, which is certainly Sue, you and myself. It wasn't Peter's ex- ex- uh, experience, but um, the idea of the Sunday school Jesus is your friend um, is where you start the the exploration of these these six different ways of understanding Jesus. And the the thing that stood out to me in your exploration of that. Um, most uh, profoundly was the way in which 
uh, humanity's understanding of the importance of friendship seems to diminish as we get older. That all of kids' books and movies and songs talk about making friends, being friends, um, you know, and, and then there's much less of it in the adult world where we're watching dramas about murder and crime and fraud and things like that. And that's the sort of stuff we consume. So it was a really provocative um, opening chapter of the book talking about Jesus's friend, not only just to think about the idea of relating to Jesus in that way, but in the way that we as adults don't think that much about relating in that way generally. How did we get there? <laughs> well, if, you know, that's, uh, I think, just sort of part of, of uh, the cynicism that comes with age is that we understand over time that there are certain people who manipulate relationships in order to get things out of us. And that friendship can easily turn into things like quid pro quo. And, you know, I'll be your friend if I think I'm getting something out of it or some level of transaction that's related to, to friendship. So, so I think that Unfortunately, friendship in uh, Western society has long been co-opted by that sort of economic vision of friendship. What can I get out of my relationship with this person? Um, there are always pure visions of friendship that are available to us. Um, I think of a lot of stuff in, in, in poetry and Jane Austen novels and, you know, lots of beautiful books um, that that actually are books that point us beyond the transactional model and remind us that there are deeper kinds of friendships. So, so I think that that's really one of the things that has happened in especially capitalist democracies is that everything gets economized, you know, it turns into some sort of monetary value and friendship is just another one of those things. And so, so we're very suspicious, I think, um, of transactionalism. And, you know, I, I mean, you see it in the church. I certainly experienced it in my career. Um, before we came on the air, a couple of us were talking about friendship uh, because of uh, some comments I made about a friend of mine who's another author. And uh, that particular person, our, our friends just literally in one of the most uh, joyful kind of uh, nicest forms of friendship that I've ever experienced. There's just literally no level of transactionalism involved in it at all. It's a, it's the real thing. And I couldn't live without his, his friendship. And um, so, so that's the kind of thing that can happen and does happen, but then there's other things that happen to me on a regular level where somebody tries to befriend me. And then lo and behold, three weeks later, I find out it's because they want something from me. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that hurts. So, so I think we kind of avoid that category and that friendship becomes just sort of a thing of the nostalgic past for us. And, um, oh yeah, when I was friends on the playground. And so, so the chapter about Jesus's friend starts with the voice of me before I'm five years old, uh, memories that I literally was able to dig up from about the time I was three and four. And I try to sort of mimic the voice of inner Diana at three or four, when I'm telling those stories about how Jesus was my friend. So there's a story about my Barbie car and there's a story about the woods across the street from my house. And there's a lovely kind of, I think, uh, uh, lyrical, uh, poetic kind of nostalgia about that part. And then I run it through, run Jesus as my friend through these frames about philosophy around friendship and biblical ideals of friendship which is Diana at age 60 reflecting back on Jesus as her friend. And then I bring the narrative kind of 
uh, together in a story that ends ends the chapter um, about friendship. So every chapter functions that same way. It mm. functions as a memory chapter about how I understood Jesus at a certain period of my life. It it tries to reduce duplicate the the voice and the feelings of being three or seven or 15 or 32 uh, in how I understood Jesus honestly at each one of those junctures of my life. And then it reflects on that from the perspective of a person who uh, I'm in my, I'm in my early sixties now. And so, so with all of that, um, it reflects on the older experience and tr then tries to draw wisdom from, from the, from it. I guess um, when when you when I was reading that first chapter, the thing that stood out to me, and you you mentioned it in there, um, the idea that sometimes as we get older, there's a desire to look away from the Jesus's friend thing. Um, you even mentioned some of the uh, comments that can be made about Jesus is my boyfriend type of songs. There's this whole sense of the sentimental one-on-one -on -one personal relationship, Jesus. Well, I'd, I'm after something more rigorous, something more academic, something more meaty than that. That's um that's sort of something we, we feel like we outgrow. But Sue, I know you said uh, when we were having a conversation that you actually think that's almost the most powerful image that we have for, for what the church can be is the Jesus's friend one, not something that we transcend and go to something deeper or media, but the most powerful one. Yeah, I, I think in some ways it is because uh, we have a sense of, we talk about a friend as someone who's got your back. You know, I think that's the sort of language we use. The sort of someone who's there, regardless of whether you're having your wobbly days or your 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 great days. Someone who can see you at your worst and still just say, "I've got you. I'm here for you." Um, and I think that is a nice image of covenantal love, that um, in more colloquial terms, you know. And I think that's the, the the Jesus as friend, the Jesus who invites us around the table. That image of the church is a really big table where everyone's invited. Um, and I think that's why maybe some of the memes about the Last Supper have have so much so much traction because you know people insert all sorts of fun things. We recognise the meal, we recognise friendship, and I think we all have a longing for someone who is for us. And that I grew up in a Methodist Sunday school as well, Diana, and um, that was certainly what I encountered there. Hmm. I really came to appreciate Methodist Sunday school writing this book. <laughs> <laughs> especially after I've talked to a whole bunch of Southern Baptist pastors and that was not the Jesus they encountered in Southern Baptist Sunday school. <laughs> Their Jesus was pretty fearsome. And uh, one, one pastor who grew up Southern Baptist, who's now, a, I think, a Presbyterian, liberal Presbyterian guy, he said, I, I would have given anything for your Jesus when I was a kid. <laughs> My Jesus gave me nightmares, he said. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's sad, you know, but that's, I think that's the truth, you know. Yeah, so. very much so. Um, well, we'll move into the, the next one now, which is um, Jesus's teacher. And you, one thing that, that I loved in this, because I think it was one of the earlier things you said in, in the chapter, is that teacher is actually the word that those who knew Jesus the most use for him most often. So if you look at how they seemed to know him and understand him, teacher was the word that they used. Um, what, what is the power in Jesus's teacher uh, that, that has been in your life? Well, I, I think that, first of all, you know, having teachers is an incredibly powerful experience. Um, you can remember 
different teachers through time, teachers who took you seriously, teachers who encouraged you, teachers who opened your eyes to stuff. And then there are those teachers that, oh my gosh, you wish you never would have run into. And uh, those scary things that happen in a class or someone you felt really just shamed by or embarrassed by. So teachers are are really, really, truly powerful um, in our lives. And, um, And so that, of course, is a really interesting sort of environment in which to introduce children. And that's the second image, really the, the image from about the time I was five to around 13. Um, the, to say that Jesus is a teacher, when a kid is sitting in elementary school or a kid is sitting in the, the Methodist Sunday school, and it's like, oh, wow. You know, Jesus is like Miss So-and-so. Or, um, and, and so is Jesus a good teacher? Is Jesus a a mean teacher? Is Jesus going to fail me? Is Jesus going to pass me? So all kinds of really interesting questions, I think, that emerge for us. So that's really kind of the first way that I begin to sort of unpack that and talk about how Jesus is a teacher. Um, but then that ties into the fact that I became a teacher. <laughs> Before I wrote books and people knew me as an author, I taught college for 14 years. And um, I learned tons about what it means to be a teacher by doing it. And uh, that experience of being a teacher also cast new light for me on who Jesus was as a teacher. So I think it's um, an experience of both having been taught and teaching that really connects me to that chapter. And I think it's beautiful that Jesus was called rabbi. Mm. I was the, the actual, uh, I, I've quoted this so many times now, I have it memorized, is that Jesus is a directly addressed by someone who knew him in the four gospels 90 times. And of those 90 times, 60 of them begin with calling him rabbi, teacher. So that's really overwhelming. That's, that's a lot. Um, almost two thirds is, is Jesus being called teacher. And one of the most significant stories in the whole of the new Testament is at the resurrection. This is the John version where Mary Magdalene and uh, Peter and the beloved disciple go to the tomb and the tomb is empty. Peter and the blood of a disciple freak out and they, they run away and Mary's left in the garden. And what happens is this really famous scene where she's, she's weeping. She doesn't know where the body of Jesus is. And there are two angels there and she hears someone behind her and she turns around. She thinks it's the gardener. And she says, uh, where have they taken the body of my Lord? And the gardener says, Mary. And she turns around again. This is, I, I love the way these things happen in the Bible. And uh, she looks at him and she goes, oh, Raboni. And so the first direct address of Jesus post-resurrection is teacher. And Raboni, of course, is a kind of a heightened version of that beloved teacher. And one of the things I didn't know about that passage when I when I was uh, working on the book is that some of the early father early church fathers and very few people can deny that some of the early church fathers are pretty patriarchal and not terribly feminist um they use this as a way of insulting mary magdalene they said oh look at that silly woman she didn't get it she didn't call him christ savior ruler of the world you know or any of those things she just called him teacher and I think to myself, 
what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a great thing to call somebody. Mm. And, um, yeah. and she recognized him and she recognized him at the core of the deepest mm. way he had touched her. Yeah. Teacher. Yeah. So instead of diminishing people. Mary, it elevates t- mm. teacher. Yeah. Cause the true teachers are the ones who help us to discover who we are and enable us to live into our gifts and our talents so you know for him to be teacher in that sense is you know is is someone who calls us into being it's it's basically a creative act um and i remember my you know the the best teacher i ever had was someone who actually helped me work out who i was um didn't teach me in one sense didn't teach me a lot of facts but i learned i learned more than i could ever have learned um because of his influence in, mm. and that was in grade four. Um, yeah, and there's a sense in which I discovered my identity through that teacher. And it's such a different um, image than, you know, thinking of a school, a teacher's the one invested in you and how you're doing and there's a personal relationship as opposed to, you know, Jesus's headmaster or Jesus's principal, yeah. which would be a very different sort of um, relationship and, and image. So, it is a lovely, lovely personal connection again. Um, the, the one that maybe at times can feel a little bit more like the headmaster one, at least in my journey, is the next one, Jesus' saviour, um, you know, which which has probably <coughs> of all of the six, I would say, is the one that carries most baggage in my journey. Um, you know, the idea of Jesus being a saviour is the one that comes up in the sort of songs that I can't listen to um, easily. It's the theology that is preached by certain parts of the church that I have had some some wounding from. So uh, help us, Diana, to recapture Jesus as Savior. I know you, you do it beautifully with some Marcus Borg in the book as well. Um, but I'm curious, if, if we're reframing Jesus as Savior as not just a bump along the road, you know, when you were in that tradition for a bit or whatever, but actually pivotal to the understanding that can help us going forward. How do we, how do, we do that? How, how do we reframe it? Oh, Dom, that was exactly the problem of me writing that chapter. Of all of the chapters I dreaded, uh, three and five were the ones that just sent me, you know, back to my knees, really. Because as my adult self, I look at the 15-year-old girl in chapter three, the Jesus the Savior chapter, and I think, oh my gosh, that was the stupidest thing I ever did in my entire life. Go to a fundamentalist Bible church and believe everything that they were teaching me. And my whole life would have been different if if that couple years hadn't happened, but it happened. And so the question for me as a, as a writer and as a, a Christian person still on a journey and somebody who cares about her journey with Jesus um, was that I had to figure out exactly that problem. How can I just not say, well, oh, well, I was a teenager. You know, <laughs> teenagers do stupid things. Some of my teen, te- my, my friends at teens, they, they did drugs. I did Jesus. It got us to two <laughs> similar kinds of places eventually. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you can kind of give yourself a weird pass on that if you want to. Um, but what I wanted to do was integrate it into my, my life and not just look at it as a sort of a side trip. Um, and so the way that it worked out for me in this book was to go back and remember what it felt like to be 15 year old Diana sitting at the bonfire in the backyard, um, 
in Scottsdale, Arizona, um, as a teenager with my youth group, uh, singing those songs uh, that we sang about Jesus in the 1970s. And I guess some churches still sing them. Um, and, uh, and why I was there and what that was all about and why I was there as I, I, I needed to be saved. There was something about me and the world that felt profoundly broken. And so I kind of, I got that right there was a wounded Diana and, and, and wounded Diana was living in a wounded world. And so when the church came by and said, Jesus saves, it was like, oh my gosh, well, this is, this is freedom. This is life. Mm. This is what I'm waiting for. And the dimensions of that are still true. I still feel like a wounded Diana in a wounded world when I'm really honest with myself, but the, 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 the shift came when I understood the nature of sin differently. At first I thought wounded Diana in the wounded world was because you know I was terribly broken, a sinner from before I was born. There was no health in me. You know, I had a really dark view of human, human nature that was uh, stark. In effect, human beings are evil. Um, and uh, the wor- because we create this world, the world is also evil. And eventually, I don't believe that. I don't believe that now. But I do believe that there's a brokenness, um, that we're distant from who we're intended to be or what the world is supposed to be. And that Jesus saves is not just you know, sort of blood being applied to my evil soul so that one day I'll be in heaven. But instead, Jesus saves me from um, the woundedness that keeps me from loving. Uh, Jesus restores health in me so that I can be in the world as a life-giving presence. Um, And so there's different dimensions of what salvation means, liberation, uh, freedom from brokenness, health and wellness, you know, all these different kinds of things that we are saved from. It's not just a single, human beings don't have a single problem, nor should there be kind of a single view of who Jesus is as savior. Mm. So that, that, that kind of prism of, of understanding the human nature and, and the world opened up a, a prism of understanding Jesus salvation so I know, so, so, well, I was just going to say um, that I know that Sue has been saying lately in her congregation a bit that if she saw a member of her congregation on the roadside holding a sign that said Jesus saves, she'd probably want to pull over and ask them what they thought they were doing. What the, what's the intention <laughs> behind this? Um, do you want to talk about that a bit, Sue? Yeah, I, I've been on a bit of a crusade, that's probably a strong word, um, to uh, re- <laughs> reclaim, you know, some of this language that we've ceded and to rehabilitate it a bit. Uh, and it's true, and I actually said this at a sermon to my people, that I would actually probably stop and go, what the heck, guys, if you're standing there with a placard that says Jesus saves. But I think we have ceded that language. And uh, the way you've just unpacked, Diana, what, how Jesus saves is like I I just align and, and resonate with that so much because um it's true, I think, and partly, and just because, you know, my own life too, I did the same thing. I could sit back and go, gee, if those few years of fundamentalism in my early 20s hadn't happened, my life would have been totally different. What was I doing? Um, 
And yet there's that grace and honouring of that whole of our experience and the thread of that that you can pick up through all is that. Um, the salvation of God, the God who has all the time in the world to enable us to um, to follow, to explore, and that, that salvation is actually to become ourselves. And some of the roots to becoming ourselves is excessively convoluted. And yet the graciousness of God that this salvation is there and it's salvation from things like not saved so that, as you say, my, my dirty soul can be reclaimed and I might make it through to heaven but saved from that kind of either meaninglessness or that, um, you know, non-existent or reduced sense of self from the trauma that you see in people's lives, suffering of all kinds, you know, the, the ways, the patterns that cause us to harm ourselves, you know, that Jesus offers salvation from all of those things. And so to that end, you know, which is where I wound up in my sermon, to that end, we possibly could still hold a sign saying Jesus saves, but it is not as the world has understood it. Yeah. Mm. I'll go and uh, get the texture and the placard out this afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) I I do talk about a Jesus save sign that hung up uh, in the shape of a cross, uh, a neon cross outside of a bank in the neighborhood where I was growing up as a little girl. And I can, I can still see that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jesus saves. (laughs) And, um, and so, yeah, you know, Jesus rescues us, Jesus frees us, Jesus liberates us. And mm. what would we do without being rescued, freed, and liberated? Yeah. And and we forget that that's all the meaning of salvation too. It's not yeah. just yeah. the blood for heaven. You know, it's 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 about living here yeah. and now. Well, maybe it needs to be Jesus yeah. saves on a placard with an asterisk next to yeah, it. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you need an asterisk for a lot of this. You need an asterisk. <laughs> Terms and conditions on the other side. We're not saying there's anything wrong with your soul, etc., etc. Um, so, Dom, I really encourage you to, as you move along, think about how to reintegrate those parts. Because one yeah. of the things that I found that I was doing was by denying these different aspects of my own life experience, I was sort of re-wounding myself. Yeah. Mm by not being able to bring it all in and understand that it was all grace. Um, And so I found that writing that chapter after, even though it was a terrible, fearsome thing to approach it, it became, it became so, so healing that before the book was published, I was sending that chapter to all my friends (laughs) saying, saying, read this, read this, read this. And, um, that was kind of lovely that my friends got really excited about it. They said, well, this is a really different way of talking about evangelicalism. Yeah, <laughs> so. no, absolutely. It, it kind of oh, makes yeah. me, when you put it that way, it kind of makes me open to evangelicalism again, which is, mm. <laughs> which is fascinating in its truest word, at least. Um, no, we'll move on to Jesus as Lord, which obviously is uh, the most political of them, just from its its origins of, of you know, obviously <laughs> saying Jesus is Lord, as you outline, is saying Caesar is not. Um, I, I am following a different way to the ruling authorities of the day. Why do you think the Jesus is Lord idea uh, makes, it maybe is one that gets so shunned by people who say Jesus is Lord, but in the same breath seem you know, mindlessly devoted to the ruling political party that they support or, you know, there's a sense in which they haven't allowed Jesus to actually take that lordship sort of position that um, disrupts power. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that, I think it's related to a, a sort of a deep part of, of our own sort of presuppositions, as it were, is that there's, 
in Western society, there's still this idea that society could is structured primarily hierarchically, that there are people who who deserve to be on the top. There are people who will always occupy middling ranks, and then there are the the poor who you'll always have with you. And that, that hierarchical shape of society, it, it, Jesus talks about that all the time in the Bible. It certainly was present in the ancient Roman Empire. And um, it haunts us. It's still with us in, in every which way we can possibly imagine. And so there's one vision of, I think, political lordship of Jesus that thinks about that pyramid and Jesus is at the top of it. And of course, if Jesus is at the top, if your Jesus is at the top of it, that means your church is somewhere near the top of it. <laughs> and so it's not about subversion, uh, but it's instead about um, making sure that your Jesus and your church and your morals and your view of the world stays at the top of that pyramid and that you have all the benefits and the largesse of being at the peak of God's desire for society. And so you get all kinds of hierarchical pretensions in churches and politics, and also just the way we structure society, gender, race, um, economic status, all that kind of thing. Um, but the Lordship that Jesus and the early church was talking about was the kind that you suggest. It's a Lordship that subverts, um, not just power, but it subverts a specific shape of power. It subverts a pyramid of power of the ancient Roman empire and any other empire that would shape itself in such a manner. And so that, and Jesus, Jesus does argue for power. There, there are going to be in the new Testament, there's going to be another power, the Holy spirit, which rearranges the powers and principalities of this world so that there's there's compassion that becomes the primary power uh, so so it's not just about power but it's about the structure of power and how power is used and how power oppresses and how we've designed systems that do that so what is this other structure and i think the other structure in the new testament is the community um the and the table becomes i think the the dominant sort of image of that alternative structure. And so you have all these stories in the New Testament about feasting and the, the, the rabble that gets invited to sit at a table and the parties and this, that, and the other thing. And people are getting anxious because there's there doesn't appear to be a head table. And so the table is not structured hierarchically or there's not a head banquet table, but somehow Jesus is even making the table available to everybody. And so you get all this nervous energy around who sits where and this, that, and the other thing, because they're trying to take Jesus image of, of lordship, which is essentially Jesus is the Lord who constitutes a new table. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what the heck, you know, <laughs> what is the, the Lord of the dance? You know, that's what we're talking about here. You're talking about that kind of lordship. The, um, and um, that that vision is one that we scarce can even, uh, you know, imagine, uh, except in song and, 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 and poetry and literature. But yet the Bible points towards that constantly. And so that that that's the tension that I'm working out in that chapter and the moments in which the alternative or the subversive lordship of the table intruded upon my imaginings um as a young christian who was seeking for you know to be faithful to have mm. jesus be the lord of my life lord not just savior uh, uh, <laughs> as, as they always used to say uh, in the 70s and 80s and um 
then Jesus, of course, as you say, it's the most political chapter in the book. Um, Jesus gets sort of captured into, um, certainly in the United States, a political movement about pyramids and authorities and the reassertion mm. of structures of superiority and supremacy. And Jesus has always been there with race and slavery and stuff in the United States. But the reassertion of that in the 80s becomes a dominant theme in my life, in the life really of any Christian in the United States. How yeah. we fight against that, how we submit to it, how we don't see it, how we deny it, whatever. But it is part of our story. And we're writing something that I really don't have any idea what the ending is going to be right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but the idea of, of Jesus as Lord in a subversive way is a really hopeful one in the face of that. A, you know, almost a new order without the hierarchy uh, is a beautiful, mm -hmm. beautiful way to think about things. Um, you mentioned right. that the next chapter, Jesus's way, was the other hard one for you to write alongside Saviour. They were the, the two hard ones or hardest ones for you. Why was, why was way, Jesus's way a hard one for you to write? The question that animates that chapter is you think you're sometimes following the right way and you find it in the wrong way. And how easy and sad it can be, even for people of faith, to feel like they're following a way that is correct, is righteous, is loving, is orthodox. And yet you get down that path sometimes and you look around like I did. And um, I was doing great violence and harm to myself. Um, as I was to people who were close to me. And um, I take that opportunity in the book to actually apologize uh, to people that I hurt and uh, talk about how I hurt myself. And once you kind of get to that point, when you say, oh my gosh, I really am on the wrong path. What do I do now? You can either deny that and stay on the path and just say, you know, oh, well, too late now, can't change. Or you can say, I really made a mistake. I screwed up here and go back and try to find a different way. And so that whole chapter is really structured in my mind. I don't think I say it directly in the book, um, but it's structured around the Deuteronomy passage where um, Moses is standing before the people of Israel right before they enter the Holy Land. And uh, Moses says, see, before, see, I lay before you today two ways one that leads to life and one that leads to death and then the deuteronomy is about you choose mm. and yeah. so so that's really the framework there is that the biblical story always is laying before us this this choice this is the most ancient of all choices in the scripture i lay before you a way that leads to life and a way that leads to death you choose that's also a story of the garden of eden and that that becomes part of our story and so how that worked out for me is what's in chapter five. Yeah. I love this chapter. I, I love you know, that. And particularly Jesus's savior and Jesus's way. So the ones you found most difficult were the ones that were most important to me. Um, and I love that sense of, of the choice. And I think, I don't know if it's in this chapter, but you say somewhere about loving yourself enough not to disappear into someone else's version of Christianity. And I think that is so strong for me because in everything we were talking about before, how much we outsource our own lives because someone comes along with this quite um, 
structured, uh, strident version of Christianity and says, here, align yourself with this. This is what you need to do. And sometimes in trying, seeking to be faithful, we end up faithless. We become, as you say, Diana, the, it's not the way. And we actually try to align ourselves with something someone is imposing from without and um, with someone else's version of Christianity instead of actually seeking where the life actually is. Uh, and too much, I think we've, we've lost that sense of how can we discern where that life is and not just accept something that someone else is imposing upon us. Yeah. It does invite us to, um, I, I liked your line, um, this, it's not about having an interstate to glory. The way is not an interstate to glory, but the, it's full of switchbacks and, and, and uh, misturns. And um, I think un, yeah, being allowed to live with doubt and ambiguity um, is one of the things you open up in that chapter. And, um, and I think, you know, it, it's when we uh, express those doubts and questions that we do actually explore the faith all the more deeply. Like Rilke said, live into your questions, um, acknowledge them. Um, you know, one, I think one of the most powerful things we can do from the pulpit as priests is to you know, ask a question about a word. So, you know, the other day I, I just said that I thought the word almighty was a theological error. And um, the number of conversations I've had about theological language with the members of the community since has been really exciting because, you know, if, if the dean can get up and say he's not sure about this, that this word is a good one to use about God, then all the questions I've got are valid too. So I think, you know, I think, you know, giving people permission to ask the questions. And I did point out that, you know, my, the way I, the way I live that, that doubt is to drop one almighty out of the liturgy. So I haven't abandoned the word entirely, um, but I've left one of them out just as a way of saying, well, I'm not really sure about this. And I'm not saying it's, you know, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying I've got this question that I can't resolve about this word that I've been trying to work out for 20 years or so. And so I'm, I'm living in this liminal space. Um, come live in this space with me and let's see where we can go together. I, I love that image of liminal space because chapter five has tremendous amount of liminal space in mm. it, um, especially when you, you go down a road and you think you're in the right place and then you go well, wait a second boy i have these questions you know and that becomes the moment and i just heard this in your story was where you you just say i i don't know and and what is that other than christian humility that capacity to stand with something you thought you knew with certainty and surety and all that sort of stuff but then to realize that it wasn't all that clear. And so to be able to make that turn toward the, I don't know, that's, that becomes the turn to go back into this space where you literally not only don't know the answers to those particular questions, but you've opened up the possibility for a whole bunch of questions you couldn't see. Mm -hmm. And so I can remember when I was in my thirties and I was trying to decide, do I stay on this path or do I go a different direction? I was literally terrified of turning around and going the diff a different way because I intuited that if I made that turn, there was all sorts of stuff ahead that I didn't, that, that would be frightening that I didn't anticipate. 
And so I resisted for a while, but once I made the turn and got into that space, looking back now, those couple years were probably the happiest, most amazing years of my life. Um, and they set up everything that would be to come, although I didn't know it at the time. I, I know it now with about 25 years to look back and say, oh my gosh, <laughs> that's where it all started. But um, I didn't know that that was going to happen. I thought if I turned back and, and asked those questions, I might die. But I also knew I was probably going to die on the path that I was on. So it wasn't like, oh, these are all bad options. Um, <laughs> and that's really, I think what you feel like when you're in liminal space is you feel like, oh my gosh, these are all bad options. And I literally have no idea what's going to happen from here. Um, but something surprising happened in the liminal space and, it, and, and the way became clear. And um, I still didn't know that it was going to be the happiest, best things that ever happened to me down the road, but that's really what happened. And mm. um, it doesn't mean it's all been easy, but it certainly has been a really amazingly wonderful part of my life. So, yeah, it's beautiful. Um, well, as we move towards wrapping up, it's kind of a, yeah. a nice um, way to finish is that the, the sixth of these Jesus's presence kind of takes us back to the beginning of the, the conversation and that story from the cathedral in Washington that you shared this experiential um, presence of, of Jesus. It is often the one that we ha find it hardest to have the language to, to talk about, to, you know, share our stories of Jesus's presence. Did you find that hard? I think it's hard because when you talk about Jesus's presence, you're not talking about a, an image that is sort of hard and fast, you know, these other images when I've, um, presented a few workshops, although most stuff is still locked down here. I, I've, I've got some new slides that I've been playing with and you can come up with uh, images of Jesus's friend and teacher and Lord and savior and all these things. When you get to way, I showed a picture of a labyrinth, you know, so that's even really more distinctive. You can kind of figure out what a way looks like, but then presence. Oh my gosh. I have had more trouble trying to figure out what, <laughs> what photograph, what artwork to use for presence. And, um, and so uh, presence is more of a, an impressionistic painting. And that's the way I approach it in the chapter. I talk about how Jesus is present through ordinary things, the quotidian kind of existence of being a wife and mother. I talk about how Jesus is present bodily um, and the importance of our bodies as bearers of Jesus in the world. And Jesus had a body and why bodies are so important. Then I talk about the, uh, I talk about Jesus in the earth, the earth as the body of Christ and um, how that image is uh, fraught it's not just, oh, look at the beautiful nature and, and lovely sunset. But I tell the story of being in New Mexico and witnessing a rock slide that felt literally like an atomic bomb had dropped um, you know, down the street in Los Alamos that they'd blown something up. And um, that this, the shaking of, of the earth even is the presence of God. And um, that really there's a, a a, a verse in scripture that I don't think I'd noticed before I wrote this book that refers to um, God, uh, God as the, the rock that gave you birth. Mm -hmm. 
And so it combined all this incredible imagery of sort of creation theology and process theology and feminist theology and all into this one metaphor that had just escaped my notice um, for 60 years of being a Christian. And so, so that's what I tried to do there was paint these different impressionistic strokes um, about Jesus as presence. And um, it raised some interesting questions about the nature of the Trinity too. And I think the relationship between Jesus and, and the spirit, a good friend of mine who is a Korean American uh, theologian, uh, feminist theologian, um, she really picked up on that. She's written quite extensively about the Holy Spirit. And she, she said that that chapter made her weep because it was the closest thing that she'd ever read to someone describing in real life um, the place that her Koreanness took her um, as a, mm. as a Christian. And um, I was really um, sort of flabbergasted by that and also um, learned from her as she explained that to me vis-a-vis -vis my own experience as I'd written it down in this book. So it kind of ends up in this interesting place. That's a little mysterious, a little, little, little um, mystical even, um, but also very earthy. Uh, with lots of implications about justice and how we care for our bodies and the bodies of others and how we care for the body of the planet. And um, so off we go to the races from there. And I conclude by talking about how Jesus is a universal presence, not just a presence in my own sort of life and my quirky journey um, and how that universal presence matters and, and, and why Jesus matters um, to the whole of the world. That, that part, Diana, when you talk about the rock slide, um, you then move on to, I think, one of the most important um, quotes of the whole book. Um, you talk, I keep coming up against this idea of, of how damaging the idea of kenosis is. That, and in that rock slide, you're talking about kenosis in that section there and that idea of self-emptying. And I've found so this is it's like the many-headed hydra for me. There's so many people in different ways that the idea of canotic self-emptying um, as it's been taught by the church has wounded and damaged people and actually um, robbed them. Um, and you team, which I think is very powerful, that instead, and we, we have talked a lot about, I think on the podcast too, about how kenosis, how the idea of Jesus self-emptying and um, is, is about generativity. It's actually about life-giving. But you team, this, the quote from you here is that empty, always moving Jesus, kinetic, canotic Christ, birth mother of the cosmos. Beautiful line, beautiful writing and beautiful line. Mm -hmm. And that idea of kinetic, that movement and, and the, you know, perhaps the self-emptying of, of the rockfall and how also, you know, literally earth shaking that was, that maybe if we get a sense with kenosis, of also movement of the kinetic Christ who keeps moving because what I'm seeing, the damage I'm seeing in, in, in myself and others is that static, stagnant self-emptying. Stay yep. in one place and just pour yourself out right. um, for the sake of some um, sacrificial ethic. But what if kenosis is also kinetic? You know, the Christ, the kinetic, canotic Christ, birth mother of the cosmos. I think that's an idea we can sit with for a mm, long time. Mm, yeah, it's an amazing idea. Mm. That, that, that passage, I think, is the most theological thing I've ever written. 
Mm. Yeah. Also mystical, which is beautiful. Mm. Thank mm. you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate that. And I, I dare say I had another couple of questions, but I don't think we're going to find a better way to end the podcast than with a <laughs> place we've landed at now um, at, towards the end of it. Um, Diana, thank you so much for writing the book. Uh, as, as someone who has wrestled with my own Christian upbringing and Christianity as a whole, it has helped me reclaim um, Jesus in a bit because I, I think I have worked to reclaim parts of Christianity I've loved, but I've been always hesitant with Jesus <laughs> just because of the Jesus I was given growing up. So I really am grateful for that personally. And I'm really grateful for you making time to talk with us as well. Oh, it's a pleasure. I, just this week, as we were getting ready to talk, I, I received a copy of the review of this book. They're kind of late with it, I guess, from Christian Century, which is the main kind of liberal to progressive uh, Christian publication in the United States. And they literally called their review, Diana Butler Bass's love letter to Jesus. Uh, and, yeah. in the, and in the start of the review, they said that it was, it was not the sort of book you expected written by a person who had a PhD in, in religion and that it was unnerving to read a book from a, a progressive that outright talked about how much uh, she loved Jesus. And I just, I thought this is the weirdest backhanded compliment I've ever gotten. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I was so, I was so just delighted by that because my whole goal of this book is yeah. to do exactly what uh, Suzanne was saying, and that is to help us get that place where we can reclaim these things. And part of that reclaiming is to reclaim Jesus with joy and delight and confidence and to know that the Jesus that was you know, afflicted on us is not the Jesus yeah. um, that, that loves the whole of the universe and um, loves us too. Yeah, that's so. beautiful. Well, the book is Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus' Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. The author is Diana Butler-Bass. Thank you so much, Diana. It's been a treat. Thank, Thank you. you.